well, it's impossible even to say his name without sounding like an asshole. But I like Wittgenstein a lot. I like I read him as a, a kind of poet, even though I'm not, never quite sure what he's saying. And I don't think anyone is. <laughs> my name is Adam Sachs. Uh, I'm a writer in Pittsburgh. And my first book is called Inherited Disorders. I first became aware of the Austrian philosopher Ludwig Wittgenstein in preparing for this interview. And it turns out that a lot of my favorite writers, or, well, at least three of them, are obsessed with this guy. He's a whole big thing. David Foster Wallace wrote a thesis on him. One thing I really like about him, you feel often like he's in a complete panic, actually, or I feel that way. In this book, Uncertainty, he's dealing with skepticism of, you know, whether the world outside him exists. It's a kind of absurd fear, but uh, something on occasion I've worried about as well. Uh, and what you need to know about Wittgenstein is this. Near the beginning of his career, he published a philosophical treatise called Tractatus Logico-Philosophicus, or however you pronounce that. It's Latin. It means Logico-Philosophical Treatise. This treatise was comprised of 526 number statements of a more or less declarative nature, and its subject was to identify the relationship between language and reality and the limits of science. Now, later on, Wittgenstein published several works, some of which were published posthumously, in which he criticized many of those statements which he had presumably at one time believed to be true, at least true enough to have written 526 declarative statements about them. Kind of aphoristic way, these single or few sentences, um, and they're all kind of placid and reasonable, but you feel like under their surface is a guy um, almost in free fall or just like, you know, completely panicking. You, you feel the... Um, it's kind of life or death concern somehow in the shadow of everything, behind everything. So I think, on you know, in the spectrum of my pretentiousness, that was on one side, and Monty Python and the fish are always present on the other. There's this quote I love in Douglas Adams' The Restaurant at the End of the Universe. That quote goes like this. There is a theory which states that if ever anyone discovers exactly what the universe is for and why it is here, it will instantly disappear and be replaced by something even more bizarre and inexplicable. There is another theory which states that this has already happened. One of the things I love about the writer Adam Sachs is that he writes stories that one could read as arguments in favor of this theory. His narratives often begin in a more or less recognizable world, a son working on the biography of his father, say, or being groomed to take over his father's company, and then they progress by a seemingly inescapable and gruesome logic towards something completely different. Recently, he talked with us over the phone, well, not the phone, so much as Skype, about, among other things, fathers, shadows, contraptions, and the poignancy of precision. This impulse to think with incredible rigor and precision about something like ethics, trying to bring a, a kind of precision that is not to be found there, there's something really poignant about it, because I respect the, and I have the same urge, you want to be able to say, you know, something is good or not, or certain politics are right or not. And because we have, you know, that kind of precision in science and in math, do you think you should be able to also when you're talking about right and wrong? And just for thousands of years, that's fucked people up. I'm Chris Camerud, and this is a Storylogical Pocket interview with Adam Ehrlich Sachs. Do you, do you miss the States, or? Yeah, sometimes I do. I think mostly I miss it in the, I, I don't, like, it's not there. So I remember all the things I love, and I remember the space and the sunshine and the way people would look you in the eye rather mm. than look at their feet. Uh, I don't know about Boston. Like, I, my sense of the Northeast and the U.S. is a bit... Yeah, it's probably a bit more British-y in that respect. I certainly only look at my feet, uh, <laughs> and I could never be in a place where people choose to look me in the eye. That, uh, 
sounds terrifying. <laughs> Uh, actually, Pittsburgh is more friendly. There's like a Midwestern vibe, and it's kind of nice, but um, too much of it scares me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I think I get that from, from your your book. <laughs> you saw that in the book, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's hard to be a person, and then it's hard to be a person around other people. Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. <laughs> well, if you don't mind, let's go back to your childhood, because I don't know, it seems appropriate. How, if at all, were stories apart? Of when you were a kid, like television or books, or were there any storytellers in your family? We have a lot of joke tellers. There's sort of like the Jewish joke tradition was alive in my family until me, our, our generation, kind of killed it. Although I realized at some point I'm, I was just sort of, this book is just kind of Jewish jokes. It's a collection of Jewish jokes when I thought I was writing literature or something like that. Yeah, but my, my grandfather on one side just had this sort of big collection of Jewish jokes he had memorized, and my father inherited that from him. So I feel like in, in one dimension, that was the main mode of storytelling in the family. I was not one of those uh, people that knew I wanted to be a writer from the time I was three. And I didn't really start reading seriously, I, I feel like, till college and after. So aside from the jokes, it was history and science and a lot of nonfiction stuff, which I, I think has affected the book too, that I sort of ended up attracted to sort of Borges and people playing with fact uh, and people that have uh, sort of embarrassment about making things up, which I think I have. I'm still trying to work out what, you know, why I do this and <laughs> if, it, if it really is embarrassment. But there's something about, you know, working with something given. I'm constantly looking for constraints of various sorts. And I think the constraint of reality and playing with it offers some kind of resistance that I like and lets me evade that embarrassment of sitting down and coming up with a guy named Stan and like moving him around a house, which is how I started for years. And I couldn't figure out why I couldn't write in that mode, <laughs> but I couldn't. You said that you didn't start with the idea that you would be a writer. What were you imagining your future self would be? There's a family lore that I told my parents I was going to be. I like had divided up the week between being a historian, being a baseball player, and being the president. And I knew the days that I would do each. And so that was my first ambition, I guess. My dad is a social scientist, but he's always kind of, he's one of those social scientists with science envy. He's an economist, and economists have always had physics envy for 150 years. Right. So I think my first mode of rebellion, failed rebellion, was toward the sciences. The harder sciences. The harder sciences, yeah. I ended up majoring in atmospheric science, sort of doing atmospheric dynamics and hurricane, studying hurricane. I wrote my thesis on hurricane dynamics and, and things like that. How did you end up going from atmospheric science to writing for the Harvard Lampoon? Well, I applied the first semester I, I got there. So in my own like self-narrativizing, it's actually because I have this story that I was just a science guy and it, and it took years for me to understand that I wanted to write. But clearly that's not correct because Already by the time I got to Harvard, I wanted to be on the Lampoon. A nice thing about the Lampoon, the Lampoon is kind of a feeder for, you know, half the, the Simpsons writing staff are mathematicians and a number of them have PhDs in, in math and science. So it is a kind of like escape hatch for nerdy scientific Harvard undergrads who actually want to be writing comedy. <laughs> and it's also screwed up a number of lives. You hear the success stories. It's unclear, <laughs> what, you know, which one I'll be in 10 years. But um, did you already have? comedy heroes or, or stand-up comedians or things that made you think, oh, maybe I can write comedy? I was a kind of Simpsons obsessive. That was probably the main thing. I've never 
really been into stand-up comedy aside from Louis C.K. is one of a few comedy heroes, but I don't have that many. And I, I had read Vonnegut and Nabokov and other funny writers in high school and before. Another reason that my story is not quite right is I was, I was obsessed with Pale Fire in high school. Yeah, this is I'm breaking apart my own sense of self right now. <laughs> uh, so, well, I mean, that's that's always a danger when you do an interview. I mean, I even get worried about it when I talk to people. I'm like, uh, anyway, carry on with your <laughs> the story's coming apart. Um, <laughs> yeah, so it was. I mean, I feel like some combination of The Simpsons and Kurt Vonnegut and Nabokov made me think there was something to comedy. I think I'd sort of been able to make people laugh, kind of, in writing even though I've always been shy. I don't, I don't quite know why I thought I could do it. Um, I don't know. I had some instinct that maybe I couldn't do other kinds of writing and poetry and things felt very foreign to me, but that this was something I could possibly do. Well, I know what the book is, and you know what the book is. Maybe describe what Inherited Disorders is, like the, the shape that it is. So it's called Inherited Disorders, Stories, Parables, and Problems. It's 117 stories about fathers and sons, in all sorts of different permutations. And it's about rejecting your inheritance. It's about rebelling. It's about not rebelling. It's about legacies. And it's about the anxiety of influence. It's pretty much about anything you could <laughs> you could think about in, <laughs> that, in that area. About everything. Yeah, I, um, I thought about the anxiety of influence, like the, the, the actual book. And then I thought about Jonathan Lethem wrote an essay called The Ecstasy of Influence. I have felt yeah very very present in the book about sons trying to run away from their father's influence or inhabiting their father's influence and one story literally stepping into the body of the father was that something you knew you wanted to write about before you started writing or something where one day you thought oh I I've been writing about that the whole time I think the realization came right before I was able to start writing the book I knew I wanted to write about fathers and sons, but I, what I was actually struggling with day to day was a completely different struggle, which was the bloom anxiety, even, which was trying to figure out what the hell I sounded like, if I sounded like anything at all uh, in my writing. So in the content, I was sort of thinking about my father, but in the day to day struggle of it, I was thinking about Kafka and Thomas Bernhardt and Nabokov and how I could do what they did and which I love to read in their writing without simply being them yeah. or copying them or imitating them, which I don't feel like I solved. That'll be in a lifelong problem. <laughs> uh, <laughs> or if I do manage to solve it, then I'll just become my, I'll become my own father and worry about sounding like myself as Bernhard did. So I, th I actually think the book started working in part when I gave up the novel form and or I shouldn't say it like that, <laughs> but when I discovered the aphoristic form, but also when I realized that that these two separate struggles could be, you know, were sort of the same theme that my father's shadow and Bernhard's shadow had similar absurdities involved, similar dynamics. I could think about them in the same book. In one, one of the interviews I read, I think you mentioned how you ultimately shifted to writing fragments. And you, and one of the, you said something very interesting, which was that writing in shorter fragments protected the stories from yourself? What part of yourself were you protecting the stories from or did the stories need protecting from? As you could probably tell from reading the book, I'm uh, a very neurotic writer. <laughs> so um, this comes out in various ways, but one palpable way it comes out is just my own sort of, it's a little bit better now, but while writing this, I 
I would just get disgusted basically with whatever I was doing. And it's a little bit hard. For, well, you know, as a writer yourself, when you feel that way, it's it's hard to tell or impossible to tell when it has to do with the material and when it's just your own psychology gnawing at yourself. But yeah, I would just kind of lose faith in whatever I was working on. It was usually a new beginning to a father-son story, a father-son novel. And I would iterate it a little bit, change it a little bit, see a new way of doing it better and start again. So it yeah, being able to write a story and put three dots after it or put a number to the next one, there was something psychologically freeing about that. I could just move on and I could tell myself it's done. I, w- I would just throw things out. I threw out a ton. I know, probably wrote 200 stories. A lot of your stories seem to be attempting to figure themselves out as they go. Sometimes it just felt like the book was figuring itself out. Like it was becoming self-aware in my head as I read it in a very pleasing way. Was that was that something you experienced while you were writing it? A sense that you were figuring out what it was as you were going? Yeah, definitely. Uh, that's something that all my, I guess that's kind of a, a tick of modernism, but it, it's also a feature of all of my favorite books, you know, at, at some point. And it, it can become really annoying too. And, and I'm sure it does in my case. It, you know, it becomes self referential to the exclusion of everything else. But it's hard for me to do anything without at the same time reflecting on it. So to not have that part of it kind of feels more inauthentic than to acknowledge what I'm doing and try to understand it at the same time. And that's always kind of intention with other, for me at least, with other things that, you know, fiction should do. It's intention with having a plot. <laughs> it's intention with um, moving forward at all. There's a, the, the first story in the book is called The Nature Poet. And it's about this poet whose father was involved in one of these stories that is your least favorite kind of stories. You know, his father was somehow burdened by the war. Uh, And so all of his poems are about ferns and creeks, but all the critics say, oh, you're writing about your father. And then by the end of the story, he decides, fine, okay, I'll write about my father. But in writing about my father, it will somehow create the outline of a fern. And the critics finally see it. Uh, I wondered if there was a fern inside your book. Because I, I do feel like every, everyone that I've, I've read interviews or reviews of your book focuses almost entirely on this is a book about fathers and sons. Yeah. I wondered what, what other concerns or what other, what, what fern-like thing is inside the book that, that people aren't seeing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You, I realized at the end, after a couple of those about questions about fathers and sons, that I, I gained no knowledge about fathers and sons from this or not, not really. Uh, and that actually wasn't what the book was, <laughs> was about. Um, or really that the antagonist of the book is not a father, that all the antagonists are sort of the son, it's the son projecting things about his father and letting those projections afflict him. So I think it has more to do with, um, well, I don't want to say what my book is about or try, but uh, <laughs> it's um, okay. It's what the interview is for. No, I, yeah. I mean, not, not that I, well, partly cause I don't know, but uh, yeah. I want to reduce it. Yeah. Right. But yeah. No, I right. think it's, uh, it felt like it was about examining my own obsessiveness and compulsiveness and neuroticism and skepticism, finding all those things foolish, which I already knew at the beginning, um, right. still letting them play out. Making it entertaining. Yeah. Trying, trying to make it entertaining. I mean, hopefully it's, if it's not just pure indulgence, which it probably is too, it's that someone else who's also a, an obsessive compulsive person or someone skeptical to the point of not being able to move will laugh at some of these things too. That Yeah, that would be a good outcome. Or that's kind of the outcome I was hoping for. 
a lot of the pieces felt like Monty Python, but different. And the thing that was different to me was there was more, like, you know, human emotion, like earnest drama stuff that wasn't in a Monty Python skit where they were hitting each other with a fish. I wondered how you found that balance where you could be kind of like a skit or a sketch and it be funny, but then also be a story. Mm -hmm. um, and by the way, I should have mentioned Monty Python as one of those earlier pre high school influences. Definitely. Um, just, I'll just cut out you saying Monty Python and stick it. <laughs> <laughs> just everywhere. Just, yeah. A hundred <laughs> yeah. of me just suddenly yeah. shouting Monty exactly. Python. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, uh, well, I kind of had faith that if I, um, if basically the motivating problem or problems got to the heart of something, I was concerned with then that seriousness or I don't know about seriousness, but that feeling of not just doing pure absurdity would somehow infiltrate the stories. Like the, the fact that this was an actual close to home concern of mine would be there without my having to point to it every time. I'm not articulating this so well, but uh, this is going to sound, sorry, this will, this will sound very pretentious, but um, it's okay. Probably means uh, it's true. <laughs> well, it's impossible even to say his name without sounding like an asshole. But I like Wittgenstein a lot. I like I read him as a, a kind of poet, even though I'm not, never quite sure what he's saying. And I don't think anyone is. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I really like about him, you feel often like he's in a complete panic, actually. Uh, or I feel that way in this book, Uncertainty. He's dealing with skepticism of, you know, whether the world outside him exists. It's a kind of absurd fear, but uh, something on occasion <laughs> I've heard about as well. Uh, so it's very, I mean, it's in this kind of aphoristic way, these single or few sentences um and they're all kind of placid and reasonable but you feel like under the surface is a guy um almost in free fall or just like you know completely panicking you you feel the um this kind of life or death concern somehow in the shadow of everything behind everything so i think on you know in the spectrum of my pretentiousness that was on one side and monty python and the fish are always present on the other you mentioned the word seriousness and i remember reading you're talking about this kind of idea that, you know, that the great writers are the comedians, but then the, the not so good writers suck all the comedy out of the really great writers and become serious. And then that serious writer gets all the fame and the funnier writer gets forgotten. Mm -hmm. um, why, why do you, do you think? Agree? Uh, yeah, I agree. Cause I, I like the, I think the last um, film comedy that won the Academy Award was Annie Hall back in the 70s when it was mm -hmm. cool to be funny and neurotic. I wonder why that is, why our culture seems to prize seriousness over comedy or why comedy means not serious. Because I, I assume you took took the book seriously. I mean, you know, even yeah, though you're being for, funny, you're... Seriously, yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's my daily obsession. Maybe the most cynical... Uh, my, of my theories about this is that most people are reading for the wrong reasons. I mean, I kind of think literary culture is uh, one of the worst cultures we have. <laughs> we have. Uh, maybe this part should be cut, or you could you just put Monty Python over. <laughs> yeah. And if you read, you know, authors through the centuries, the good ones are always complaining about this. This is nothing new or nothing about our particular culture as shallow as it is. I think culture is always most 99%, you know, shallow assholes. Yeah. And then there's me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, right. This can't help. This is going to sound worse than my name checking Wittgenstein. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I do think a, a lot of book chatter is um, 
especially, you know, prize chatter and review chatter and all, all that bullshit is has to do with, you know, advertising one's taste and connecting yourself to what is seen to be intelligent and prestigious. And yeah, I mean, comedy is it's harder to it just doesn't have that aura around it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned Louis C.K., who I mean, he didn't become world famous and renowned as a young comedian. It took a long time. Yeah. And then even longer to become not just a famous comedian, but crossover and be seen as a, um, you know, the philosopher comedian that he's taken to be now. Um, right. I think yeah. that takes longer than some, you know, a young, serious novelist writing about wandering around a city and thinking about the Holocaust. <laughs> That's a much quicker route. Yeah. There's so much wandering around cities. Yeah. I don't... Yeah. The flaneur. Yeah. The assholes. Yeah. Um, yeah. I <laughs> Though I really like the word flaneur. It's a good... Yeah. It's, it's a better word than it is a thing to write about. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's life. It's a better word than a thing. Um, yeah. <laughs> a lot of the stories in the collection are about insistence, like artists insisting on what their work means or critics insisting on what the work is supposed to mean. Was that something you were conscious of, the push and pull between people insisting on what art is supposed to be? Yeah, I think that was a concern. I started a PhD in history of science um, and left it after a couple of years and ended up actually taking a bunch of literature classes. And I spent that time also reading a lot of fiction outside. And so I, there was, I think I did feel or was interested by that tension between, you know, these writers trying to create things that are supposed to elude easily pin downable meanings and that sort of thing on the one side and on the other side, just being both in the literature classes and also in the history classes. It's just a series of sort of um, different theories to explain the world. Basically, that's that's what history is. You know, you have Marx and you have Foucault and you have for, the formalists in literature and it's just a... Uh, Lots of different ways to take all these things that are supposed to be singular and subjective and and pin them down in a system of meaning. I kind of like both of those. I, it wasn't like I was celebrating the meaning creators over the... I actually feel personally closer in a way to the analysis side. I like Kafka a lot, but he, he always feels more mystical than I'm capable of being. You know, he's he's great because he has both. And that's, I feel like, a constant tension in, in him, too. He's... You feel this mystical urge, but you also feel him parodying it. And he creates the, you know, the before the law, the that great parable in the trial. But then he has pages and pages of kind of absurd commentary about what it could mean. One of your stories is called Precision, which is about a son going to his father's tombstone. And the father's tombstone has a mathematical constant on it. And the son has figured out the new, the latest decimal point and putting it on the tombstone cracks the tombstone and it. Well, it was funny, but it also was so sad, this feeling that in searching for precision or understanding, you just end up ruining everything anyway. Yeah, that's a nice way of putting it. Uh, you know, I feel like a lot of, for example, ethical philosophy, I like reading it. It all seems completely absurd to me. Uh, Derek Parfit, uh, who, who died recently, but wrote, uh, you know, how many th thousands of pages on, on what matters, trying to prove that. Kantianism and utilitarianism and one other are all the same. And he, he uh, <laughs> like the string theory of philosophy. Yeah, exactly. And my, my dad also likes thinking he thinks there are ethical truths to be discovered. And so th th this impulse to think with incredible rigor and precision about something like ethics. This is all something that Wittgenstein 
talks a lot about you know, trying to bring a, a kind of precision that is not to be found there. There's something really poignant about it because I respect the and I have the same urge. You want to be able to say, you know, something is good or not or certain politics are right or not. And because we have, you know, that kind of precision in science and in math, do you think you should be able to also when you're talking about right and wrong? And just for thousands of years, that's fucked people up. <laughs> if we try to bring that same level of precision to ethical thinking, you know, there's still about how many thousands of ethicists out there. And they're often, you know, among our smartest people, but they also seem among our most absurd people, you know, coming up with their cases and deducing consequences and clearly it's all yeah. on a foundation of nothing. <laughs> right. Yeah, a lot, of, a lot of your stories reminded me, I remember from the time when I was a math person. I mean, I still love math. But the idea that if you started with a false premise, you could prove anything was true. And, that, and mm. the, the great anxiety of being a mathematician is that you'll prove something's true and then realize that you started in the wrong place. And it feels like a lot of your characters, they, mm -hmm. they start in the wrong place in their attempt to prove something true. Yeah, I mean, that's Kafka's great trick, too, or, and sketch comedy. And you just kind of grant one absurd thing, whether or not you recognize it as absurd. And then, you know, you have this tight logical chain. And, yeah, so you feel like a lot of, you know, theologians and ethicists do that. You, you make one leap of faith, mm -hmm. although they often the theologians have more of an idea that they're doing it than the ethicists. <laughs> and then, you know, you spend 40 years tightly, you know, logically reasoning <laughs> about this completely absurd set of circumstances that you've leapt into without realizing it. It also reminded me of screwball comedies, like the, the 40s, 50s comedies, because I've, I've, I have my own pet theory that a screwball comedy isn't really that much different than a horror movie. It's just mm. that no one dies in the end, but it's like you do one thing wrong there's some misunderstanding and it just grows and grows and grows. Mm -hmm. I, it made me wonder when I was reading one, one of your stories, Concerto for a Corpse, it had a, this kind of gruesome logic to it that reminded me of Edward Gorey and Edgar Allan Poe. The, the son is chopping off parts of his body in the hopes he won't have to play his father's uh, concertos anymore. And his father composes a nine finger, eight finger, seven finger. You know, it's not clear if this is a misunderstanding between them or just deep, deep cruelty. <laughs> like that description. And those, by the way, those two are two of my favorites, also Edward Gorey and Edgar Allan Poe. I, I, I've had a similar thought, I think, about horror and, and comedy. Slightly different valences, but basically the same kind of dynamic to, to both of them. It might have something to with this use of logic, which, mm. you know, in, in a lot of realist novels, the appearance of logic um, in the plot, for example, that would ruin the work or make it seem unserious or deterministic or not like life because like we all know life is random and you know precipitous and whatever so a novel in the you know james wood realist mode should have that kind of chanciness to it so there yeah there's both something i think lowbrow to the use of logic in your plotting or but also i think in our you know in the best absurdist works that which i love that's there too and it's the kind, a kind of logic that the author in the best case has sort of forged himself like you know you feel like kafka logic is its own kind of or beckett logic it's um yeah it's a it's sort of formulated their own kind of logical laws and and then all of their works obey it in a way that is um or bernhardt becomes or gertrude stein you know becomes um 
boring and predictable, uh, <laughs> but, and great, you know, all my favorite writers, I feel like are, um, completely boring <laughs> and completely repetitive. This book is not great, but it's repetitive. I like got the repetitive part. I know, I, I don't think there's anything to fear about being repetitive. When you finished writing the book, did you have any sense of, of hope or accomplishment? Because one of the things I remember talking about in the podcast was about how all of these people were going to such absurd lengths to accomplish what was impossible that I kind of get excited by it and hopeful. I wondered if that was your experience writing it or if you would go back and forth between despair and, you know, and hope. Yeah, that's my normal vacillation. But uh, <laughs> no, I, I think, well, I'd been so long of years before of, and of failed projects. So sort of 20 pages into this, realizing that this was a form that I could maybe p possibly finish something in. And that felt like it was not drying out and stultifying as I was writing it, as it usually felt, but sort of like deepening and changing. Yeah, like two months in, that was probably the best feeling of the book. Like, this is happening. <laughs> this is working. In the end, uh, the last few months were actually probably the worst again, because, you know, the downside of this form is there's no uh, ending to write towards. Yeah. Really. Um, I wondered how you shaped it. Yeah. Uh, just like through the stories in the air or let your cat walk on them and <laughs> That was the dealing with the cat was a serious problem. Like, we were in an apartment where I couldn't my office like she could open the door. So I so I printed all the stories out and was putting them on the floor. Um, and she would and this it was it took me a long time to try to order them. And she would want to come in and like sail, you know, just like skid across the papers. So we we bought all these ropes. This is <laughs> and uh, it like tie up my door to like a lamp to keep it closed and and then she would like bang on it all night trying to open yeah um this is is mixed up with the ending of this book not being so pleasurable i guess uh, <laughs> yeah i felt like there was more moments at the end of of kind of grace and mystery like the story of the flying contraption where you know the sun has been told not to fly the flying contraption because it doesn't work and then the sun does and that you end on a moment where maybe the flying contraption didn't fall immediately and the son maybe rethought everything he knew. And I felt like there was moments like that more towards the end of the book. So concretely, I noticed there's a bunch of, well, there's death, deathbed scenes everywhere. I like a good yeah. deathbed, um, but there's probably a higher concentration of deathbed scenes <laughs> at the end. Yes. That's a superficial observation. Yours is a much better one. <laughs> I think there is more. Um, yeah. They're just kind of like, um, yeah. well, I think I wanted good stories mostly at the beginning and at the end and a bit of a slog in the middle. Uh, and I think okay. actually the stories that I felt were more the better ones um, were usually the ones where I felt like I didn't know exactly what I was saying hmm. uh, or where I had that open-endedness even for myself. Whereas, uh, you know, and there's some that are just straight comedy basically. And I feel like yeah. I know what they're saying and I don't like those as much, but if they made me laugh, sometimes I decided to keep it anyway. Right. Yeah, there was a there was a feeling of um, I think you mentioned this somewhere about the way a joke told often enough or a joke extended long enough reaches a moment of tedious that if you can push past it, it becomes funny again. Mm -hmm. Was that something you felt in your own repetitions in the book, like in a in a fiction sense that as tedious as this might feel, if I can get enough stuff here, maybe it will push past it to something you know, maybe not profound, though I, I thought, you know, there's some good profound stuff there, but at least 
more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. Um, well, I think I had to have that faith if this were to be a book, because um, a book has to be a certain length to sell it, and, <laughs> and I have, right. and I'm writing in this form, so uh, it better be sustaining interest. Uh, it is true of uh, Proust. So his like his dinner parties that go on for hundreds of pages, and uh, at a certain point they're tedious, and then you push through, and they become absurd, and, and that's Beckett, and that's Gertrude Stein often, and Bernhardt, and and children's stories. That's you know. Mm. What I meant about children have a higher having a higher tolerance for, you know, a dog going up to you and asking if you like his hat. Uh, they can that can go on and on for a kid and become completely ludicrous in a lovely way. Uh, yeah, yeah, I like that. I don't think I've ever outgrown that, or I, or at least right. I want not to have outgrown it. Do you think there's something on the other side of that absurdity, like you know, you know, tediousness if you stay with it long enough in in the hands of someone that's skilled become can become this kind of glorious absurdity. Is there something that happens <laughs> after absurdity? <laughs> yeah, so it probably goes tedious, absurd, tedious, tedious, absurd, tedious, and then you die, right? I mean, it's, it, just, <laughs> it's, it goes back and forth at a certain... It obviously cycles back to tedious, but then if you push okay. with it, it gets back there's, to there's no, there's no grace in... in, in oh, no, 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 no. There's no, no salvation. Yeah, okay. I mean, I'm, Occasional I'm a delusions. Jew, so. <laughs> okay. Yeah, it's delusions, delusions of, of meaning at some point, right? Definitely. Yeah, but those are okay. good enough, right? And yeah. some, there's some laughs and some delusions of meaning. I don't know if you ever happened to watch this thing um, called Inside the Actor's Studio um, that was hosted by this guy, James Lipton, but he had a questionnaire he would always do at the end of his interviews that was taken from Bernard Pivot, who was this French talk show host who had taken the questionnaire from uh, Proust. Proust. Mm-hmm. So this is my my place to drop a bunch of fancy sounding names. Good. Now we can uh, be a bunch of <laughs> together. <laughs> um, yeah. So it's just it's just ten questions um, and just answer off the top of your head. It, attempt not to think about it too much. I guess. All right. At least one word. Uh, well. All right. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They can be. They can be. Yeah. Yeah. We're already thinking too much about this. Yeah, I'm even. Well, I'm even I'm giving you this. too much in- introduction. Yeah. To Bernard the Pivot. What would Pivot want here? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, uh, okay. What is your favorite word? Oh, geez. <laughs> this actually might be my worst nightmare, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> is it? Okay. Uh, um, no, let's see. I have, a, I have a bunch of words that I think are innately comedic, and like sandwich mm-hmm. would be one. I think that's a, a comedy word, so I'll go with that. Sandwich. Uh, what is your least favorite word? Uh, um, well, because we talked about it, let's say flanner. Not, the word itself is good. What it represents, it's bad. Yeah. Uh, what is your favorite smell? Um, maybe my cat. My cat's fur. Is that weird? Um, I don't know. It's <laughs> sweet, which somehow feels appropriate for the the book, which is weird and sweet. My sister had a, a fun, absurd moment with my... She's taking care of my cats in the U.S., and this is... this. Uh, the cat was sick, and so she took the cat to the vet. And when she got to the vet, the cat was already not alive anymore oh no but she didn't know at first and so she's like come on let's go see the vet and we'll get you fixed up and the vet's like nope that's the cat's dead oh jeez, um, that, that is the least funny monty python sketch <laughs> it's ever been t- oh that's so sad uh what is your least favorite smell um maybe ga- gas station i get really paranoid about like fumes and what they do to my brain so like a a good like gasoline fume 
I mean, you kind of like it, but it uh, scares me. Okay. Is that is that something you encounter a lot in your life, that the things that you kind of like also scare you? No, I think that's a incidental. Uh, yeah, like getting hit in the head that kind of scares me, but there's nothing, nothing pleasurable about that. <laughs> right. Okay. Yeah, that's true. Um, what do you wish that you knew more about? Um, the uh, theoretical physics, <laughs> you know, the... Uh, basic stuff of the world that'd be nice to know back to is there a truth maybe in theoretical physics yeah i, I don't think so but uh, <laughs> you think but it's, that, a, it's one world that i have no idea I, I feel like there's something there and i don't know what it is and uh yeah i feel like i and there, there's no way i can ever really investigate that on my own like a lot of things you can investigate on your own and make sure that there's nothing there um like ethics i kind of feel like I could investigate enough to know, okay, there's nothing here for anyone right. and you're all deluded, but I can't say that to a theoretical physicist. What do you wish you knew less about? Um, maybe our current political scene. So if we pretended that your life had a soundtrack, name three songs just off the top of your head. Maybe uh, see a, a Leonard Cohen song, Bird on a Wire, like that song. Yeah, I don't know if it has anything to do with me. I'm turning this into three songs I've listened to recently that I like. <laughs> uh, I have some Dylan, um, maybe Don't Think Twice. Although I think both of those are like romantic songs and that, that has even less to do with me. Uh, let's say some repetitive Bach, you know, variation. That that was, um, I listened to that a lot while writing the book for it's to convince me that re repetition is a, a high virtue, so... Uh, I feel like we've talked about this a lot, but what would you say your favorite kind of story is? The, the story you crave? Something that starts in a in a recognizable world and um, builds to a point of pure blissful insanity and inanity and uh, pointlessness. And then, what would you say is your least favorite kind of story? A man strolling through. Uh, either New York or Paris or Berlin, um, <laughs> thinking about uh, the burden of the, the Second World War and how it still infiltrates every aspect of our lives. Is that what your novel is going to be about? Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's one of those things I hate. It's like a gasoline fume. To... <laughs> <laughs> um, so William Faulkner said this thing. He said that the only thing worth writing about was the human heart in conflict with itself. If Faulkner came back from the dead to write the story of your life, what would that story be about? Um, well, for, for me, I feel like it's the human head in conflict with itself. So it'd uh, be about some privileged sort of upper middle class dude, like sitting in a room and thinking to the point of confusion um, and, uh, and not getting any comeuppance for it, at least not yet. Adam Ehrlich Sachs' book, Inherited Disorders, Stories, Parables, and Problems, is out in paperback this week. If you would like to learn more about Adam, visit his website at adamerlichsachs.com. You can find a version of this interview featuring informative footnotes and some illustrious illustrations by our very own E.G. Kosh on our website, storylogical.com. If you don't know how to spell storylogical, ask a friend. While at our website, be sure, if you haven't already, to subscribe to this podcast and also to check out some of our past episodes in which we regularly discuss our favorite stories and most often, generally, end up discussing life, the universe, and everything. <laughs>
Of particular interest, perhaps, episode three of season one, in which we discussed a story by Adam Sachs, along with a story by Edgar Caret. The name of that episode was Defeated by Greater Things. You can find and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash storylogical. You can follow us on Twitter at storylogical. And you can follow me on Twitter at kuvals. You can also follow Emma. She is at egkosh. If you enjoyed this interview and you would like a bit more of the conversation between Adam and I, including his thoughts on the brilliance of children's literature and his enjoyment of the disagreement between Emma and I as to the merits of certain of his stories, we'll be putting those and other extra bits in our newsletter. You can subscribe to our newsletter at our website, or you can go to tinyletter.com slash storylogical. Storylogical is sponsored entirely by our love of short stories. If you want to support us in sharing that love, there are a few ways you can do that. You can leave us a review on iTunes. You'll find a link for that in the show notes. You can share an episode you particularly love on social media and be sure and tell people why you love it. Or, you know, you can just pick one person in your life that you know might enjoy Storylogical and tap them on the shoulder some afternoon and say, hey, there's this one podcast you might like. Thanks for listening, readers. Happy reading.